This is the DLR Cast, the essential podcast for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. Welcome once again, ladies and gentlemen, to the DLR Cast, the only podcast by and for fans of the mighty and mercurial David Lee Roth by two guys who are fans but not fanboys. I'm Steve, joined as always by the co-host with the most, the guy who puts the pal in Paltrowitz, Oh, Darren Paltrowitz. Hey, buddy, how are you? That was maybe the best intro you've ever given on the, the show. Was that off of notes or are you just freewheeling Steve today? Um, I freewheeled it until I put it down on paper so I'd remember it. How's that? That is probably better than any intro Roth has given in the last 20 years, I would say. <laughs> that, that was like a lightning bolt in my Cheerios. The lightning bolt, the, the lightning bolt in my Cheerios. I... <laughs> That should be revised a little bit. Wow, you're like a lightning bolt in my 40% total all brand or something relative to the yeah. age, you know? Grape so, nuts. The grape nuts, too. There you go. So, <laughs> Yeah, I, I think uh, it's a unique week in that this is the first week in a few episodes or weeks where there's not a lot of news. We had a while where it was like seven, eight weeks in a row. It's like, is Dave alive? Is he okay? <laughs> we, we really were on a roll. Uh, new music? Right. And then back and forth, the various uh, different things happening online that we've gone over ad nauseum here. And just a, a, a word of thanks and a hello to a slew of new listeners um, that I've been seeing, at least via the stats that we get. So uh, welcome if you've been new the past couple of weeks. And uh, it's uh, great to have you here and ho hope you're digging what we're digging. Yeah, nothing but yeah, as the great one would say. And you know, we had in the last two months, hey, a new song from Dave. Hey, the Deep Throat podcaster from the Dave and Dave Unchained podcast. Oh, wow. The Rolling Stone article of Eddie. Oh, wow. The Rolling Stone article <laughs> with Wolf Wolfgang. And we just got all this news along with the tribute tour. And then it just kind of quiets down again. And I, I was really hopeful that we were going to get the announcement related to Alex and Don Landy being spotted in the mixing studio, but that never went anywhere, unfortunately. <laughs> no. And we also should add to amongst all that news was Dave's very succinct, cringeworthy three point response to th what two or three weeks after the Rolling Stone, Eddie and a journalist email texting feature thing that came out a couple of weeks ago. So, uh, so Dave did weigh in with that and a new song. The new song was necessary. Him yeah. weighing in definitely was not necessary, but we talked that up last time. So, but yeah, it's been, it's been quiet. Yeah. So I've been uh, trying to make news on my own, doing <laughs> cringeworthy things to David's levels. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you the first one. Um, I, one of my good deeds that I like to do once or twice a year is I look for family and friends on different unclaimed funds lists. Have you ever done this, Steve? Unclaimed <laughs> funds lists? <laughs> no, I, I should. I, I've looked once or twice, but it it just went, went down a morass of, of various websites sure. that wanted money and ID information. And um, but Opposite, do, do, if, do go on. If they are asking you for money, it's a scam. But otherwise, they're free government-run websites that basically say, hey, we've got your money, and uh, feel free to get it back. Just give us some ID info. And some states are really easy to get it from. Some states really make you jump through hoops and or 
it just make it difficult. And then other states like California tell you, hey, this check and this vendor and all that. So well, hold on one second. Have you been successful doing that through the years? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I found my wife on one of them. She just got her check today. Wow. I, I found relatives. I found myself. Um, but one of my favorite pastimes after I find a bunch of friends and families to look at some of my favorite musicians and see what property they may or may not have sitting with the states. So I figured, oh, no, let's see if Diamond Dave is on the unclaimed funds list of New York and California. And the answer is yes. And yes. Come on. How do we know it's real? It could be somebody else named David Lee Roth. Definitely not. Uh, you look at some of these vendors like Warner Brothers Records. Um, Dave has checks just sitting with the government from Warner Brothers Records. Okay, hold on. First off, putting aside the fact that this is oddly and weirdly almost sort of maybe, I don't want to use the word stalker material in it, but let's just use it investigatory, which I I believe I am pronouncing correctly, because I know your bona fides as an investigatory journalist and trying to find things and having access to info and many other things that your average Joe does not have. Public records, I tell you. But, you know, the good deed is I then wrote to his accountant and went, by the way, uh, Dave has some money sitting with the state from this and this, and here's a list, and I don't want anything in return. Just, you know, a nice thanks would be fine. No response. <laughs> well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, he, he, you know. I, I think that it's a good deed that you should do for people in general. It's it's not just the like mocking or trying to get a favor. It's just, hey, sometimes people could use a little extra money and it was theirs to begin with. So you do that. But in the case of Dave, uh, his New York state unclaimed funds do include L.L. Bean. I don't know what that's about. <laughs> so we so L.L. Bean sent him a refund. Yeah. Or or he moved. And they sent the check and it got. So basically what happens is a check gets mailed to you. It never it never ends up in your hand. It gets returned to sender. Something happens. Yes. And it doesn't get does it get returned to the sender or. It might get returned to the sender and then the center as a finance department goes, oh, we don't know what to do with it. But how does that end up in public records then? I guess they go, they give it back to the state and the state makes the list of going. Here's all the stuff that we have as a service. As a service. And, you know, this is commonplace in the entertainment industry. You know, I've also done this for friends with some of the musicians unions like AFM 802. And I forget what the one is in L.A. It's another AFM. But let's say you were on The Tonight Show and you were just in somebody's band. You know, you're not the singer songwriter who wrote the song. You're not the singer. But if you played guitar or bass or percussion for somebody, there's a like a couple hundred bucks that you get from it, in addition to whatever wages you were getting. A lot of the musicians kind of show up late. They don't do the paperwork or whatever. And that check goes back to the union and it just sits there. So, you know, you will look through those lists and be like, oh, John Lennon's on the list again. Well, obviously John Lennon wasn't on The Tonight Show, but it's the kind of thing where people are a little faulty with the paperwork. The stuff just goes back and just sits there. So, you know, you think you do a good deed. You send the note, you go, FYI, it's there if you want to get it. And then usually they go to their accountant and go, hey, you do this, earn your keep. So that was that was uh, crazy thing number one uh, that was done. 
<laughs> I think maybe we won't say number two and number three, but the bottom line is we're trying to help people with the DLR cast. There's no good and no good deed goes unpunished. I don't right. know why that just popped in my head, but <laughs> it, it's it's not wrong right there. And uh, this this will crack you up a little bit um, because I cover food and drinks for a number of outlets. And, you know, every now and then, hey, do you want to interview this really famous musician about their restaurant or their food or the drinks? And you say, yes. You know, I normally wouldn't be able to get them through their music publicist, but for food. OK, well. Today came another email, Sammy Hagar's new cookbook and his new this and his new that. Would you like to speak with Sam? Oh, I write back. Yes. Here's where I'll run it. Okay, we'll check. This will probably be the eighth time that that has happened with the Sammy. Would you like to talk to Sam? Yes. Interesting. Is it the same publicist every time? No, it's, you know what, it's different ones. So, so maybe this was his publishers. Th this one, um, this one, three or four different times they told me, yep, we'll let you know next week. Uh, and it's been next week for about three years. <laughs> well, fingers crossed. I don't know if he'd still talk to you if he found, if he found out you were the co-host of a, of a website, of a podcast dedicated to Dave. Maybe he'd ask you to do a Hagar one. <laughs> Anything is possible, but you know what? I interviewed Sammy's son probably six, seven months ago. He had a new album, and ironically, his publicist at the time was Mitch Schneider, who right. was who, publicist for 11 years or so. One of our guests very early on, going on yeah. two years ago. Yeah, so maybe the team didn't vet Mitch for his credits when that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and then, you know what? A new mystery has, has evolved to me, um, I have to look a little more into this, but apparently there was a corporation that was open for two years or so, a California corporation called Hagar Roth Touring. Now, I haven't seen what the documents are yet, but I think that kind of tells me that Hagar Roth was, as our old guest Jesse Harms said, that tour was supposed to go for a long time. You don't just start up a corporation like that for a two-month summer run. No, you start. It was at an LLC. Do you start? There's got to be an accounting or tax reason to start this thing as the entity that's you're running all the expenses and making all the payments to the road crew and roadies and drivers and all that through. Yeah. As one entity instead of each individual. I wonder if other tours do that. These like oh, the big stadium yeah. tour with Def Leppard and Poison and and Motley Crue that's that's out there this summer. Actually, I guess that makes sense instead of somebody trying to divvy it all up between. Two two high powered bands or even three bands. I get if you're just an opening act, but when you're on co-headlining, you can't go after the fact and go, well, wait a minute, you had you had the chicken in the green room <laughs> in Cleveland, and I had the vegetarian. Do you know what I mean? And so I, that makes perfect sense from an efficiency and bill paying paying all the vendors that are involved and the staff that's on with a, on a tour. I know what you mean, but I don't think that you do that for a one to two month tour. I think no. that, that for an 18 month tour, like Jesse said, that it was probably going to go to Europe and Japan based on the sales being strong and all that. I'm also kind of surprised that it's so on the nose by calling it Hagar Roth touring. I mean, well, let me see if I still have it on my desktop. I'll, I'll click a few things. Spoiler alert, because I saw this and then I put it to the back of my mind. Um. Oh, Hagar Roth Touring Incorporated. 
it was closed in 2015. Uh, no, no, 2005. So it was open from 2002 to 2005. So it had a three-year run. So it's not like the tour just wrapped in September 2002 and it closed. There was some massive paperwork going on. So that kind of leads me to the question of, is there a lot more to the Dave and Sammy story than the public knows? Because why else would we have that corporation open for three years? There most likely is. Yeah. There most likely uh, is something greater. Yeah. So, hey, uh, as you said up top, some excellent excellent feedback from some of our our listeners uh one of them i do have to uh, apologize for a great listener uh dave vincent i called him by the wrong name i thought he was seshmeister from the dlr army board different different dude there's a uh-huh. lot of named dave out there <laughs> but he hit me to this unreleased dave song called hot rod which i then sent to you and we're thank you for sending thank you for sending the link yeah, we're both uh, scratching our heads over that one. That's an original, right? It sure sounds it. I mean, I I was gonna say it sure sounds like it, but how would I know? How do how do we know? <laughs> now you said that David said that this was background music to the Roth Show, correct? Yes, I don't know which iteration because let's face it, there was like. Three iterations. Uh, three. The Roth show, the radio show, not the aforementioned one or two. Were both podcasts named the Roth show? I was I, on a side note. I was caught up watching some of the early episodes uh, or I, th- I think it was. No. Yeah. The first version of the Roth show. And do you remember the theme song? Where is David Lee Roth? Yeah. Just a great fun song. It just stuck in your head instantly. I couldn't help but wonder. And I haven't looked for it. Who wrote and performed that? That is where a, is David Lee Roth it, now that we need him. Sorry, folks. More than ever now. More than ever now. <laughs> that is in the credits. Um, and I may or may not have used those credits to look up people to interview for this show. Got I may, it. I, I may I've done that. How, how come does it, that doesn't surprise me? You're only so, one of the more thorough guys I've ever met. Well, I don't know. I don't know if thorough is the right word, but. Yeah, the that song, as uh, Dave Vincent pointed out, was in the background of an episode. And it's, it sounds to me, this was my take on it, because it's it's kind of disco-y. Dave seems to have done his disco-y stuff late 90s, early 2000s. Hence, a bunch of the songs sounding like that in No Holds Barbecue. That's, that was my impression that... That's when it's from. It's not early 90s. It's not mid 2000s or circa Van Halen reunion. Yeah. Once again, instantly got to thinking what else, all the stuff that we have not heard. And I mean, there's only on that video, there's not less than a, it was posted two years ago or by David, according to YouTube. Yeah. 700 views. We're going to hopefully we'll spike that up a bit. <laughs> yeah. If he gets. You know, seven views, we can say it's a 1% increase. There you go. But it's a cool tune. I mean, it's it just that little bit we heard. And then, of course, what was it? The week before, you found that uh, the snippet of song that sounded like it was it was a little acoustic live bit of Dave, of um, John Five and Dave playing. Oh, now I'm spacing Nothing's on the name gonna of this. Stop us. Nothing's going to stop us, which. Like I said last week, my goodness, that should have been the song that Dave put out as a tribute to Eddie. Yeah, 
I, I re-listened to Somewhere Over the Rainbow Bar and Grill today, and I, I like it more each time I hear it. That It's such an emotional chorus. Whether or not you believe that Eddie inspired the song in any way, that narrative, whether or not you believe it, it's such a great song that it doesn't deserve to just be a throwaway from 2021, eight years after or so, allegedly after it was recorded. Well, I'm, I think he's clearly putting these things out not as throwaways because he digs the music and and wants to get it out there, right? I mean, I'm going to take you to the mat on that one. I'm going to say <laughs> it's a throwaway because if you put out a song, if you're a multi-platinum superstar artist, you put out a song, you don't do a media push behind it, you don't work it at radio with any kind of a campaign. And keep in mind, to do a radio campaign can be as low as five hundred dollars. I'm not kidding you. Song- which isn't gonna, which isn't gonna get you too much. It's you have to spend a lot of money to get a, an independent track on radio, and radio doesn't sell shit anymore anyway. Pardon to any radio friends listening. No, but if you, if but you your get- classic rock station who plays jump twenty times a week, <laughs> they're gonna play giddy up five times a week in overnights. I've been through this before in my indie label days. I mean, just trying to get a classic rocker, get airplay for a, a heritage, quote unquote, heritage rock act, classic rock act. I mean, there's so many other avenues where this can get out there, like YouTube, which you, you mentioned somewhere over the Rainbow Bar and Grill has grown on you. That one's really grown on me. You know what else has snuck up on me is Giddy Up. These are great songs. And again, I really, gonna... they are. They're really good songs. Isn't that that's that's the bottom line here. So that's why I don't think they're necessarily throwaways. I just think. Asking him to do anything even remotely conventional at this point is a big is a big lift. And what gets me about this, he's just putting it on YouTube. You know, it'd be great. What if he did a little vlog on it? He's got there is a David Lee Roth YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Just he's been in front of the camera for his podcast so many times talking stream of consciousness for 35 minutes. Right. Give us 10, barely 10 minutes on the genesis of Giddy Up. I'm calling it a throwaway based on the approach, not the quality of the material. But if I can give you a little conspiracy theory right here, old school music publishing deals used to be based on, and you you would know this because you've managed bands and promoted, et cetera. It used to be contingent on the number of songs that you gave them that were coming out and being released. And then you trigger a new advance or a new cash flow kind of thing. So it's like, hey, I give you eight new songs every 18 months and I get another 400 grand. Like I just made up those numbers there. But that's how it used to work before the publishing industry imploded a little bit. What if Dave signed a publishing deal? Where he's getting an advance every time he gives them three songs, and that's all this is. I don't think he's getting any. I I don't think, I don't think he's getting much of an advance. He changed. Well, based on the back catalog, his royalties are just through the roof, under the radar. But he's Van Halen used to be all under Warner Chapel. He hasn't then, sold his rights like so many other folks have. He hasn't sold, but he's done a series of admin publishing deals. This is really getting in the weeds here. But when Van Halen started and we're splitting everything four ways, and then even with Sammy, everything was under Warner Chapel music. And then one by one, they started leaving the, the Warner Chapel fold and doing their own deals. And it, in other words, it's kind of like that thing where you're Sylvester Stallone and you're nobody, so you sign a bad deal. And then your movie makes hundreds of millions of dollars, and then you negotiate your rights back 
You know, Yenner you know saying right, like, sure, sure. That kind of stuff happened with Van Halen because they had the worst record deal, as they'll tell you at the beginning, and then they renegotiated a bunch of times, and then I'm sure Azoff made it even sweeter. I would have to think that these songs coming out have something to do with the publishing deal. I can't prove it, but I know that Dave has renegotiated his deal over the years. Right, but when you when I'm I'd have to go look up the Spotify spins, but collectively, yeah. does Giddy Up has 158,000 plays at YouTube. I don't have the Spotify. I mean, collectively, have these things got 2,000, 2 million spins yet? Do you know what I mean? I mean, so how many royalties are these things pumping out? There can't be much oh. to warrant an, oh. a big advance on this. Almost nothing. You were correct on that end. But that's why if you're Aerosmith and you go, we want to put out a new album, if it's the record company that has your back catalog, they go, yes, of course, because they start talking about you again. And then the sync licenses pop up from all the old stuff so that it looks like you lost a fortune on the new album, but you made all that money back on the, the catalog. So that's an old school strategy that it wouldn't be surprised me if this is tied in with that. Well, no, no one's losing money on an album like that. If they're getting any sort of advance, they're not going to recruit the, the, the label's not going to pay royalties until that advance gets recouped. And if you're smart, you get a big advance because album royalties are shit. Yeah. But who's commanding a big advance anymore? I don't know. And I I would bet you David Lee Roth is not one of those folks. All due respect, <laughs> not one of those folks command a big advance anymore. And plus, so many, so many artists now are eschewing the major label thing, and they're just licensing their music to a label so they can so they can keep their masters, which back in the day, no one did. About 10 years ago, and my former company was kind of a part of the shift, there was all these artists that were coming, that were getting out of their deals, and people like Motley Crue or uh, Jackson Brown, Collective Soul, were just like, okay, yeah, the record label got them to all this, to this bigger place, but they own all our masters, they all own our music, so we're our own brand now, we want to do this on our own, and that's why so many heritage and, and classic acts went the indie route. Because they just needed a they just needed a conduit to the marketplace, and they're not taking an advance. But what they're getting is they're getting they're owning their music in perpetuity. They're getting right. some sort of royalty at a time when the album sales are slowing down anyway. And they're going to make and for a while they were probably going to make as much money selling CDs on the road if you're on the road a lot, right? Than you would in stores. And now that's probably the case if there's bands even still selling a lot of CDs out there anymore on the road for classic rock acts. But yeah, I mean the whole world is is topsy-turvy in that respect compared to what it used to be 10, 20 years ago. I just don't think that, I just don't know, unless there's something that's coming up that warrants payment for something that could really blow everybody's socks off. It's kind of an odd thing. If you're going to put out an album that that fans are waiting for, no matter how big the fan base, you wouldn't, you'd keep it all under your, and I'm talking about the record with John Five, you, you would keep it all under your, under wraps for the most part, for a little bit, instead of dribbling it all out, because you want people to get the whole thing all at once, I would think, if you're going to go the album route. I'm with you there. It's I... it's 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 nothing that, <laughs> Lord knows, we have spent now hours in bandwidth <laughs> trying to figure out these moves when it comes to his music. And I spoke last week about, I got some different ideas from, a, and we can talk further on a different episode, not to take up so much time here, but we know you're a Van Halen fan. You're always left wanting more, right? 
but in particular, Dave is so damn artistic, right? You look at the you look at the CD jackets for especially for your filthy little mouth, yeah, uh, for his solos for the solo stuff, and of course for a different kind of truth where he did all the graphics, all the drawings. Okay, as a fan, would you buy some very cool limited edition box set, vinyl or CD or both at a really at a cool price with limited edition prints in there or limited edition? Designed by Dave. Do you know get what I'm saying? I would at, buy the coffee table book. It's it, just right at 50 bucks a pop. Put those songs out of Spotify, however way you want it, but also market and promote it in a cool way. Do a couple interviews if we can keep you seated that long. <laughs> you know, if or I, say, I mean, get out there if you. Well, I should say if we can keep you focused that long and just talking about what you got going on musically. Because do you remember too? Was it? I can't remember what song it was, but do you remember he was? We were lamenting this. I forgot what podcast he was on. Was he on Marin or Joe Rogan? And it was right around the time one of these songs came out. Not one mention of the music, neither yes. by the host or Dave. It's like this timing. Now, granted, the podcast could have been recorded two or three months before that. But no. still, I don't think it was that far in advance. No. Yeah, Rogan so getting is- him to promote this stuff would be uh, would be difficult at best, maybe. I'm 100% with you there. And and this is an actual question I don't know the answer to, uh, really getting even further into the weeds of music industry stuff. When you have that big, big album, usually you renegotiate your deal. And if you have a few big albums and you have a great attorney, you renegotiate your deal with a major so that the albums come back to you in a certain amount of time. And I know Metallica renegotiated their deal, I think 93 or 94. So 25 years came and that was, uh, was it, did Metallica's come back to them in 2018 or is it 20, whatever it was, that's why all the stuff came back on the creeping death label. And then Metallica re-licensed it to a Right. Well, a lot of artists don't get that stuff back, though. That's a lot the thing. Of them don't, but you know, U two people don't really talk about it. But U two, I believe, has. I believe Bon Jovi has. There comes that point where it becomes theirs, and then they're the majority. And then the major label has to like listen to them. Def Leppard's done that too. That might be in the contract. X amount of years it reverts back, but there's tons of stuff that never revert back. Well, we're especially seeing- if you're especially if you're a young artist or you only did an album or two. That stuff is out of print and you're wishing you still had a few copies left promo back in from 92 when you were on a short tour uh, because no one can find it and you can't put it out yourself. There's a lot of those for sure. But in the case of Van Halen, do we know, are the albums reverting to the Van Halens? I would have to imagine that they are. And if they are, that's why they never put out all the outtakes in the back catalog. And that's why they've been so difficult at Warner Brothers. There's certainly more money if you do it on your own. And license yeah. It. yeah, so I'm I'm wondering if maybe that's a Greg Renoff question that he knows the answer. Yeah, to. and that's also, I mean, that would give another contract. I mean, Warner Brothers just can't do it on their own. No, definitely not, and they definitely don't have a product manager who's just dedicated to the Van Halen catalog the way that Led Zeppelin would have that at Atlantic. But going back to that song "Hot Rod" that yeah. Vincent sent us, so. You agree with me? It's it's a late '90s, early 2000s jam, and I, I would I would think it's got to be late nine. I, it just feels like to me. It depends on what I would say early 2000s. Okay, so if it's this, early 2000s, I mean, he was on the air in 2005. Uh, 2006, January 2006. And when was No Holds Barbecued? It doesn't sound like it was something from that time period. Two. 
Well, some of the no holds barbecues, ELO, uh, Shine a Light. Right. It's, it's some disco stuff, and he's doing the keyboard strings sounding thing, and there's a little more disco in that era, like the um, Living in America James Brown cover that's in the background of a of a DLR show episode. That's right. Or Raw show. And that was record that was recorded in the nineties, I think, right? He said that, but I don't know. What what I'm getting at, okay, this this is a weird conspiracy theory rabbit hole. And I apologize, but I I got thinking about this. So if it's late nineties, early two thousands, that would mean Bart Walsh played guitar on it. Hmm. And Bart Walsh's lawsuit against Dave was something about like not he was promised x amount of work and x amount of week salary and that kind of a thing is a salary related dispute and usually bands who tour part-time don't do retainers and salaries it's just kind of like well if we're touring we're touring what i'm wondering is if dave has been doing all these unreleased not released sessions and this has been going on for decades now does that mean that there are recordings with this Vegas band because he has been recording and he has been in the studio with this Vegas band that if you're in Dave's band, that most of your recorded output is just unreleased. Like if you're in his band, it's a real job. It, okay. What I'm saying is just because there's no tour dates on the calendar doesn't mean you're not working with Dave every week or every other week. Right. I, it's it's kind of catch as catch can, right? I mean, yeah. So in other words, if you get into David Lee Roth's band, it's probably not because you can play Eruption perfectly. <laughs> it's probably because oh, do you play country? You play disco. In other words, that this is Dave's equivalent of having a pick pickup game at the at the park. This is his uh, basketball pickup game equivalent. His his cover band, his side band musician thing. That sounds that that sounds really plausible. Yes. So in other words, you don't get the gig because you're the second coming of Eddie Van Halen or Alex Van Halen. You get the gig because you can do that, but you can also play disco. And Dave feels like doing disco today. And you're going to get that call of where are you going to be in two hours? Well, I need you at Henson because we're recording Casey and the Sunshine Band tracks. Speaking of bands in Henson, didn't wasn't there a post Al Estrada post on Instagram not yes. long ago? Did we talk about this? And I think he mentioned somebody asked about who was on drums, and I thought he commented on it. it he if he commented and he was being honest, he would have said Francis Valentino, who's been in the fold since the second half of the Kiss tour. Uh, right. I, I don't remember what the comment said. I'm trying to pull it up, but I yeah, a mental note that obviously failed me quickly. I well, I believe what happened was Francis, Francis and Ryan, who've been playing with Roth uh, since uh, or at least for the past couple of years, they put up Instagram stories that they were in the studio and they kind of came and went really quickly. So it it wasn't long-term knowledge but al did a post and what i think happened was they were trying to do gear endorsement posts do you know what i'm talking about yeah thanks for sending me the free stuff this is a great brand and the the, the post kind of comes and goes really quickly but 
Al left his up forever. You know, it wasn't an Instagram story. Right, right. And uh, if they did track stuff, we have not heard it. No, and who knows if we ever will. <laughs> and uh, when you think about it, those guys have been playing longer with Dave than Billy Sheehan, <laughs> um, uh, Terry Kilgore. A lot of these people that you forever associate with Dave, if somebody like Ryan has been with with that band since 2018, 2019, and we're half the way into 2022, that makes him <laughs> the fourth or fifth longest tenured member of the David Lee Roth band. However, as we know from previous <laughs> interviews, previous guests, right in that time period, there could have been four drummers. Um, Has he gone through more drummers than any other <laughs> than any other instrument? Oh, that's a good question, because there are three drummers on your filthy little mouth alone. Right. And then Ron did the tour, not any of the three guys that played on the record. It's it's it. I'm telling you, we we got to we should we. We should write down and just keep a tally. It's it's that should be our homework. Let's write down that we know. I mean, and just the sheer what did we a couple episodes ago we were trying to figure out. I think we just back of the envelope sort of thing. We were like, at least recorded. There's what twenty five to thirty people over seven albums or something like that. Not counting backing vocalists and you know right. players that kind of a thing. But yeah, it's it's around that. It's kind of weird because Greg Bissonette and Brett Tuggle are guys that were in the fold the first time. You know, six seven years, but then. I think it really started with A Little Ain't Enough, where it was a different band on the album from the studio. Same thing happened with Your Filthy Little Mouth. Same thing happened then with the Vegas band that, you know, he's kind of swept under the rug like that almost never happened. Right, uh, right. Same thing you could say happened with the DLR band because there's three different guitar players on that. And then... The touring in support of that had Bart Walsh, who didn't play on the album. So that's four guitar players. And then No Holds Barbecue had uh, Toshi Hikeda, who is not on the DLR band album. So that's f- uh, five. And then Brian Young came in in 2002. So that was like six guitarists in five, six years there alone. It's dizzying. Yeah. And I don't know. Is that genius and quality control? Or is it Dave, I don't want to play disco covers. Demand or and just being demanding. He wants what he wants, and it's got to be exactly what he wants. Yeah, I remember going back to the Brian Young interview that we had on, you know, a year and change ago. And he told me when he got the Roth gig, it was just for two shows. So he didn't want to give up all of his guitar students and quit all of his stuff over two gigs. Cause what if it didn't go well? What if there wasn't more? It turned out to be six years for him, but I'm guessing when you get the Roth gig, he doesn't go, Oh man, you're locked down for the next two years. I bet you think it's like five shows. And then you're like, okay, well that was fun. And then he's like, wait, where are you going? I got a disco session on Tuesday that you got to play on. You're kind of on retainer, right? I mean, it's very similar to how, I shouldn't say very similar, but it reminds me, and I've read a lot of books on the man, but how Elvis would record. RCA always want a product from him, but of course, getting him to do anything after from 1971 or 73 or so till his death, 74, was impossible. So they'd, so they would just, 
when there was a session, they would roll up the mobile recording truck. But the thing I'm getting at is that these these musicians had to be ready to go. They're all ready to go. And well, right. get, we might record today. Eh, we might not. <laughs> yeah, Prince, we've heard those stories about Axl Rose, where there would be like three studios being rented at the same time. Like, which one does Axl feel like going to today? Um, I, I None of this is us saying that Dave isn't much smarter than us and talented and hardworking. It's nothing to do with that. Where I'm going is, why can't we hear some of this stuff? <laughs> I think mercurial is the buzzword for today. Like, I'll, I'll, I don't care if it's country. I don't care if it's disco. I don't care if it's just covers. Like, I, I want to hear it. And uh, the song that he did, the thermo, I will never remember the name of it. What is it? The thermo? Thermo molded plastic chair, yeah. something. Right. Great song. Great song. You hear the guitar lick in it. And when I interviewed Scotty Emmerich, he said, yeah, I did it one time. And they said that was great. And I left. Isn't that insane? I heard it again. Uh, I think that with the right collaborators, some of this material is really good. This John five stuff is really good. Why wouldn't you want the world to hear stuff? That's really good. Speaking of really good, let me direct you to one thing and I'll send you the link, but folks can find it. As we go down the David Lee Roth, and what we'll, we should catalog these and for a next episode. But you're always sending me links to that you find on YouTube. There's David. There, there's a David Lee Roth video where he's doing just like Paradise. David Lee Roth, Japan, 2004, and he's bar. He's got a rhythm guitarist. It's from Japan, and yeah. he, there's a version, and it said number three. So I'm assuming there's two other videos, but it's just one of these ones that popped up and doesn't pop up when I do searches, but it just popped up uh, before the call when I was looking up Hot Rod. I look over to the right. I'm like, huh? Japan, 2004. And oh, uh, it's here's... by, a, it's, a, it's a channel, Gonzo TV. And it's an amazing version. Now, 2004, he wasn't, I mean, we were a couple, we were a year away from, go, and he had shorter, he had very short hair, short hair, more like your filthy little mouth era. Right. And, but we're what, two years away from, less than two years away from the Best of Both World Tour with Sammy, where he had one less guitar player on stage. And, it's just it's it's a great performance. You should check it out if you haven't. If you don't already know of this. Well, here's the weird part. If that is the gig in Tokyo, Shibuya Kokaido, I was at that show. It does say Shibuya Kokaido, Tokyo. God damn it. This is a whole <laughs> other episode, Darren. Well, here's the funny thing. Somebody commented this is nine years ago. Where and, and the guy wrote Gonzo TV. Those are from a Japanese TV show, Party Dude. So this so this particular video it's pro shot it looks it looks like broadcast in fact it's got a it's got a chiron in fact it does a chiron in the corner that says party party dude so somewhere during that when you saw him around those same days he did this japanese tv show called party dude and did just like paradise okay well but it, but it looks like it's on stage though but it was it's broadcast quality i mean yeah it's a big stage he's got he and he's got a black leather jacket on yeah so he, he had this trick on that tour where I think he was wearing one leather outfit, but they were changing the spotlight colors or the gels on it. So it looked like it was green in this song and it was yellow in that song, and it, which is genius because he didn't have to do costume changes and could just sweat through it. But I remember that show being super awesome, but I don't know if I ever told this on air. I've told this one to a few friends. So at that point in time, the Roth show was totally on autopilot it was the same concert every night no matter where he was in the world so i saw that show in 
on Long Island. I think I saw it in Japan and I saw it in Milwaukee like a year later because I was in all these places like, oh, Roth is playing. I'll Roth is here. That. I'm going to check it yeah. out. And I think in Milwaukee, like he changed, he got rid of a song and he put in DOA into the set, which was cool to hear. But when I say he was doing the same show every night, I mean, the part of the show that he was doing in Spanish, he did it in Japan. <laughs> this is before he learned to speak Japanese. Uh, yeah, he wasn't speaking in Japanese. Um, he was doing the Spanish thing and he was ad-libbing in the crowd. And I dare someone to find the audio of this. I swear to you, he's looking in the crowd, talking to somebody who clearly was an imaginary human being. Uh, and he goes, but you don't look like Beyonce. <laughs> and I <have> no idea. <laughs> that means uh, who he thought was going to laugh. It's called shtick, folks. <laughs> in, another, in, a, in another world, he would have been a Borspell comedian, right? A vaudeville guy. But the crazy thing, first off, I'm reminded when I watched this earlier, was that that band, this is Bart Walsh, but there's a rhythm guitarist on this. Uh, no, on this that, I, I got to correct you. That wasn't Bart Walsh. Uh, no, it wasn't. If really? it was before, the rhythm guitarist is Toshi Hikeda. Okay, because the camera doesn't really focus on him that much at all. But I look, for a minute, it looked like Bart Walsh. Yeah, the guitarist uh, on that tour was still Brian Young. The oh, okay. Right now I see it. Okay, got it. Bassist, I believe, was still James Lomenzo. Yep, I remember that him. And Luzier was on drums, just killing it. Totally killing it. He, yeah, it was, how do I explain it? In the interview that we ran with, with Brian Young, he talked about how he loved the first tour or two that he did with Dave because it's pretty much just Van Halen one or two, but uh, I'm sorry, Van Halen one and two tracks. And then as time went on, Dave would be like, let's take that out and put in just a gigolo. Let's take that out and put in paradise. Let's take that out and put in California girls. And it suddenly became the best of David Lee Roth show. And this tour was like the best of David Lee Roth and shoe bop. Uh, you had to listen to shoe bop every night. <laughs> You know Shubop, please. Of course I do. <sighs> of course I do. It always. I don't know up. if I'd want to hear it every night, but I will tell you this: I do not fast forward. I do not skip it. Yeah, well, that was the one new song. He wasn't doing slam dunk at all. He was doing Shubop. I was it, thinking that today. That song is in a really high register, like Hot for Teacher. Yeah, I think it was just the hey, we got to play one song from the new album because that infamous. Uh, Finland 1999 MTV concert that I never stopped talking about. The creme de la creme kick-ass solo show. It is. And I think next show I'm going to have to tell you about a new Roth show bootleg that I found that I'm still trying to determine if it's amazing or not. Um, but yeah, he was doing slam dunk in that era. It was all hits and slam dunk. Man. All right. Well, I'll tell you what's a slam dunk. This week's <laughs> interview, folks. Yeah, I had the pleasure a couple of months ago speaking with Edgar Winter, who was promoting at the time his new album, which was a tribute to his brother, Johnny. I'm imagining you're a big Johnny Winter fan. Mm, that's a good imagination you have. I mean, <laughs> I know who he is. I can't say I really dug too deep into him. Got it. Yeah, me too. He's always one of those names that you hear as opposed to actually knowing the songs. But Edgar you know, did a touching tribute, the whole album of basically – Johnny covers and songs that Johnny did and star studded. I think it's 
one of the last recordings of Taylor Hawkins from the Foo Fighters before he passed. A lot of your favorite musicians are on this album. So, you know, how long do I have with Edgar? And I think they're like 45 minutes. I'm like, what? Uh, Okay. Uh, So that gives me enough time to throw in a couple of Dave questions. So I asked a few Dave questions in there and he had only nice things to say about Dave. Um, And now throwing it back to you for a second to make sure I'm correct. Tell me if I'm missing something here. So Edgar played on the Crazy from the Heat EP, correct? Right. And he then was in the Vegas band in 90. The Mambo Slammers. The Mambo Slammers. And probably the only person that Dave has ever let sing live, uh, sing lead in his live band ever. Ooh, good, good catch. That's right. But were those the only two runs, 85 and 95? Like, was Edgar Winter ever around again? I don't think so. Well, that we know of. Did he do any other? <laughs> was there some recording with or without the Mambo Slammer, some other stuff? You know, you never hear what. Did they only record this just the songs for Calif- uh for for um, his EP for Crazy from the Heat, and that's it? I or forget there- where I read that they cut other songs for that EP. It wasn't in my dream and made up. I read somewhere that they cut more than four songs or at least rehearsed more than four songs, but did not finished. Have you ever heard that before? No, I haven't, but, uh, but it just, as quick as that was cut, supposedly. Yeah. You mean that was it? You got the Jones to do these songs and, and that's it. You have the time in the studio. I mean, clearly he wasn't looking to do an album at all, but for shits and giggles, like, or just for his own fun, right? Really? You mean there weren't one or two other songs that weren't tried out or cut, or maybe, maybe we're going to make the EP, but just, no, no, this, you know what? I think, I think this works better with, you know what I'm saying? Well, he wasn't out of Van Halen yet. So all we know, the David Lee Roth, I feel like recording disco this Tuesday and it's Monday right now. That may actually go back to 1984, 1985, that he was recording for fun on the side. That that by the time he's doing that with an Ice Cream Man remake in 94, 95, he'd been doing that for a decade. What do you say on that theory? I I think that sounds like a really good theory. It sounds it it sounds completely plausible and possible, especially now that we know that we know for a fact that there is there's tapes, lots of tapes. Yeah. Like John Dean, like John Dean said sometime during Watergate, there's tapes. <laughs> and, th- and that reminds me, I forget the name of the author, but he wrote that book uh, is a fire in the canyon or eruption in the canyon that like Eddie Van Halen centric photo book that he didn't get paid for. And then Eddie sued him for putting it out and he was claiming non-payment. And I so- never read that story, but I mean, I never read the book, but. But a bunch of the photos, one of them was shared today. It had master tapes on the wall and it said like eruption, take one, uh, this take two. Immediately, everybody enlarges their screen to start reading the the masking, the, the labels and the tape on the spine. But the caption, I think it's Andrew Bennett. The caption was something like Eddie had everything masterfully organized and cataloged. So... I I wonder how his library looks compared to Dave's. I think they're both masterfully 
masterfully cataloged, but I think there's different stuff in their libraries because wasn't the sticking one of the sticking points of Dave recording at 5150 like, hey, I don't have access to this stuff. Therefore, they're going to screw me. Right. And we yeah, we heard we know that. Good point. Yeah, so uh, the questions remain. The rabbit hole keeps getting deeper and deeper. And uh, thanks for tolerating all these sidebars and conspiracy <laughs> theories. And uh, uh, I, I guess after we hang up, I'll look for unclaimed property for you. Uh, we'll see what you well, let me let me know, would you? <laughs> which, remi which reminds me, I should look up stuff for my for my dad who passed last year because we're we're finding out in post trust and probate sure. all this other stuff it's like how many bank accounts were there i'm not saying i'm retiring anytime soon but 200 here 13 dollars here a nice amount of money there it's still in my stepmother's i mean it's just can, can i not every not everything was cleaned up although things were are pretty cleaned up but still who knows add that most of dave's unclaimed property with the state of california I'm not making this up. <laughs> are his dad's stock dividends? <laughs> so you look at it, and it's like, oh, Nathan Roth owned a lot of Boeing stock, I guess. Okay, <laughs> there's a lot of random dividends. I don't know why it goes to Dave, or if it's just the other Roth kids, you know, like new to claim their checks or whatever. But you, you're not the only one. I think you and and DLR have a lot in common with. Uh, dividends and hidden bank accounts and <laughs> look I'm, not, I'm nowhere near i'm nowhere near retirement retirement but it might be worth it might be worth looking into so offline i'll have to get i'll have to get darren's surefire tips to find un, unclaimed unclaimed dollars nothing but yeah but uh hey thanks to everyone who's still uh bothering to listen <laughs> who's, to, who's still to listening this. at this point <laughs> nearly an hour later we're only gonna go do 20 25 minutes right yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, uh, so disco and conspiracy theories and unclaimed properties and uh, and me in Japan and there you go. <laughs> we go you. deep, folks. This was the very definition of our original plan about plan with this. Hey, you know, this conversation would make a good podcast. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> thank you for <laughs> for encouraging this this bad behavior and uh, time to get a little sun outside. Enjoy. Hey, Edgar, can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, I hear you great. Wow, that's a this, beautiful studio setup that you have. Oh, well, thank you. Is this Darren I'm speaking with? This is Darren right here from New York. Uh, are you dialing yeah. from Beaumont or L.A. or where? That's it. Uh, this is uh, beautiful Beverly Hills. Nice. <laughs> I'm the, the authentic Beverly Hillbilly out here. <laughs> yeah, just a few years there, I can imagine, but... I'm so glad that we were able to connect. You know, I've been following your music for decades now, but the new album is fantastic. Um, obviously a very personal album. When did you start recording it? Because there's a lot of special guests on there. Yes, there are. Uh, it's been about three years in the making, almost. And uh, it, uh, it started, you know, shortly after Johnny's passing. I was approached by a number of people and the timing just didn't feel right. And they just felt more like deal offers, people uh, sensing a business opportunity. Right. Uh, and it was an obvious thing to do. And I just wasn't emotionally ready or prepared to do it 
for a number of years. I, I, spent, I spent years not making the record and then years actually getting around to doing it. But it was something that I just literally felt that, that I had to do. I felt compelled to do. Johnny is my all-time musical hero. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to I acknowledge and thank my lovely wife, Monique, to whom I've been happily and blissfully married now for uh, 43 years. We just mm-hmm. had our wedding anniversary last month. But she uh, actually helped convince me to do the record because, I, like as I said, I hadn't entertained the idea of immediately. But uh, when I talked to her, she was very definite about it. She said, well, you've always spoken about Johnny mm-hmm. and, uh, and about how uh, if it weren't for him, you wouldn't be where you are and his being your musical hero. And here's your opportunity to acknowledge that you owe it to yourself, uh, to Johnny and, and to the world. And I'm just so happy that I've made it. And my heart is just overflowing with joy and gratitude. We just found out yesterday it's uh, number one on the Billboard Blues chart. Well deserved. I mean, well, thank you, Darren. (laughs) (laughs) It's not your first number one anything. It's not your first piece of success. But you make a really good point when you said you didn't want to go with a record company that was just going to go, oh, okay, it's X number of units because it's a personal record. And putting it on it starts off with a gem, Mean Town Blues. When you recorded Mean Town Blues, did you know, hey, this is the album starter? No, we didn't decide on the sequence until the album was complete. The first thing I did was to choose the songs. Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, like there were certain songs that I felt uh, obviously had to be there, like Rock and Roll Hoochie Coo, Still Alive and Well. And then uh, in the second tier of those songs were Johnny's originals. To me, Mean Town really exemplifies Johnny's early writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and it is, as you said, it is, it is a gem. And, uh, and it actually depl- displays something that I think a lot of people are either unaware of or don't fully appreciate. And that's his fusion of blues and rock. Mm-hmm. And it you know, it's such uh, like I remember the first time I heard it, I said, wow, it sounds like um, it's like an old primitive uh, slide guitar riff, almost like a John Lee Hooker thing. But it has this intensity and energy of uh, full out rock and roll. How did he do that? And right. that was sort of the model for a lot of his early writing. Uh, I'm yours and I'm her is a lot like that. But uh it was, I thought, the perfect song to lead off the album. And Joe Bonamassa just did an incredible job. Uh, I, I didn't, uh, one other thing, I did not associate the songs with any particular artist. I wanted the people, the people that are on this album are the people who really wanted to play on it. And they're doing the songs that they wanted to do. I always gave them a wide selection of songs to choose from. And uh, the first one that Joe picked was Self-Destructive Blues. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was talking to him on the phone and uh, we were discussing going over song lists and 
and I got to self-destruct. He said, wow, you're really going to do self-destructive? That's the first Johnny Winter song I ever learned and played with my band. And he was so excited. And he came in with, with his Firebird and uh, old basement amp, the exact rig that Johnny used. And I swear, I, I closed my eyes and I felt like Johnny's presence was in the room. Of all the people, uh, I think he came the closest to channeling Johnny. And I, I also want to say that was really never my intention. I did not want to do a nostalgia album or a sound-alike album. And for the most part, I just, like, I didn't want to pick the usual suspects. I wanted a sort of a very uh, interesting array, an interesting cast of characters, uh, which I, I hope I succeeded in assembling oh, there. But, uh, <laughs> the, yeah, well, you know, Joe, the, the thing, like, he actually had to dive deep into the Johnny slide style, which I think is the most unique thing about Johnny's playing. Uh, was his authenticity as a as a blue slide player and uh i thought joe just captured that so amazingly so there you go you mentioned that cast of characters which i was interrupting on because <laughs> taylor hawkins uh who we dearly miss steve lukather greg bissonette joe bonamassa multiple generations of great artists and that's actually something that's unique about you You've been able to collaborate your whole career with different generations, different genres. There's not, not a lot of people that I get to interview who've been sampled by Tupac or Eminem. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, you were, good point. <laughs> yeah, you were unique in that you know, realm. So that makes me curious about something. Were you always happy to collaborate with other artists or was this a lesson that you learned from working with other artists? Well, it's just something that that naturally occurred. Uh, it was it was nothing that I set out to uh, accomplish. And, you know, to be honest, I never thought uh, I've ended up, ended up sharing the stage with people I never even expected to meet, much less have the honor of, of playing with. And uh, Oh, just so, you know, Leon Russell and I had a band together for a number of years. Michael McDonald called me out of the blue uh, to uh, join his first band, uh, first, you know, after, uh, after the Doobies, the first solo band that he put together and invited me to play on his first solo album, uh, if that's what it takes. And it was just such an honor. And just, I, I just, I love Michael. And those are examples like Michael McDonald and Ringo Starr uh, are not people that you might expect to see, but uh, that all came about basically through Joe Walsh. And oh, Joe! Joe, uh, I had said that I that I didn't associate a song with a guest, but in this one case. I asked Joe to, to do Johnny Be Good, mm -hmm. and he picked another song. And he, like, uh, Joe and I go way back to when he was with James Gang and we played shows together in the 70s. And I used to do that song with, with Johnny. And it, it was such, uh, it was a song that had to be on the album. It just a, tried a, a quick story. When we were kids, uh, 
like you think Johnny B. Good is so obvious. It's Johnny yeah. Winter Tribute, yeah. Johnny B. Good. Yeah. But the actual backstory behind that is that uh, when I was 12 and Johnny was 15, there was this big local talent contest. And uh, our band was Johnny and the Jammers. And our hottest song was Johnny B. Good. So we entered that contest. Uh, played the song and won and first prize was you get to make your very own record so uh, that song was really responsible for starting our career and uh, had it not been for that who knows but the thing was was I wanted to sing that song with somebody and I thought Joe would be the perfect guy and uh, he said well it's that traditional Chuck Berry I don't know what I can bring to that let me hear some other uh some other thing. And much to my surprise, he picked Stranger. He did sing with me on Johnny Be Good, which I just love because it felt just like, it felt so real. Uh, we had our arms around each other and we were singing, yo, go Johnny, go. It just reminded me so much of doing that song with Johnny. But he picked Stranger, which is a very, uh, one of my absolute favorite songs. And, you know, I tried to pick the songs that Every song has a personal significance to me on this album. And I didn't want to just do, I thought about when I started to do, uh, should it just be a straight ahead blues uh, tribute to Johnny's legacy? Or should it be more a personal ded dedication from me as Johnny's brother to him? And I thought it should be a balance of both. And Stranger is always one of my absolute favorite, beautiful ballad, very uncharacteristic of Johnny, sensitive, uh, and uh, reveals a sort of a vulnerability that you kind of don't expect from Johnny. But Joe, I always think of Joe as a rocker and I expect him to pick up real up-tempo, a real barn burner. And, and I was so surprised when he picked Stranger, they did a beautiful job, uh, in, you know, translating that. And then uh, that led me to think of Ringo and I, had wanted, I dreamed of having Ringo on the record. I really didn't think there was much chance of his agreeing to do it. But for those of you who may not know, uh, Ringo is married to the lovely Barbara Bach Barbara. and Barbara's sister, Marjorie, is married to Joe, Joe Walsh. Walsh. So yeah. they're uh, brothers-in-law. And I thought, well, now I've got, uh, you know, I've got Joe on this track. It would be just great to have Ringo on the same track. And so I just finally got up the nerve to call him and ask, and he, Edgar, I'll do it for you. <laughs> and it just, it just got, it, it touched my heart. I don't, I don't imagine he plays on that many people's records, and it just means the world to me. I mean. Whoever thought a, a kid from Beaumont, Texas, an albino kid from Beaumont would end up playing with one of the Beatles? I, I would have thought with Ringo, <laughs> you having been in the Ringo Starr All-Star Band, that it would have been an easier phone call of like, hey, Ringo, you remember that one time in Cleveland where I helped you out? It would have been one of those. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it is full circle. Uh, you know, I've played on two or three of his solo thing. And I just don't know. I'm I'm just so much in awe of the Beatles, uh, and and I love Ringo. Is not only a great drummer, but just a mm -hmm. great human being, a great person. And his outreach and advocacy for peace and love is something I admire tremendously about mm -hmm. him. He's just so uh, 
so natural and spontaneous and just right there. He's like really in the moment, uh, very, very quick-witted and sharp-tongued at times, but always in the spirit of fun. And he's just, you know, uh, I'm going to be I'm going to be playing with him this summer with back with the All-Stars after uh, 10 years. And I'm really, really looking forward to that. It seems like all the people in Ringo's band kind of are like that. Lukather is a very fun person. Rungren, who's been in and out in the band a lot of times, fun person. It seems yeah. like being the Ringo band is less about the hits you had and more of can you hang with Ringo and be peaceful and non-dramatic? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is a big part of it. I always think of it as the love tour because uh, uh, everybody loves doing it. I love doing it and, and people love to see it. I mean, it, it's just like, uh, you know, my standout memory is uh, in 2010 and it was Ringo's 70th birthday and we were there at uh, Radio City Music Hall and there was a big uh, surprise plan for Ringo that he yes. was completely unaware of and we had walked off stage and we were coming back from the encore and walking toward us from the opposite side of the stage there is Paul. Sir Paul McCartney yeah. and Joe Walsh and you know Paul strapped on his Hoffner it's your birthday I just and and I had that underwater wavery piano, yeah. that, that cool piano sound, and and Joe was killing it on guitar, and Ringo was bashing the drums. I said, "Man, I can't believe it! I'm on stage with with Ringo Starr and Paul McCartney. What what uh, what a blast!" Uh, yeah, I, everybody I, I, goes to to those credits. They say, "Hey." Edgar played with with Ringo and he put they there is the usual people where they put Edgar Winter parentheses and Ringo's there. But a lot of people don't really ask you about your time with David Lee Roth because you were in and out of this band a few times. I know that first you were on the Crazy from the Heat EP, you right. were band leader of the Vegas Residency. And a lot of those recordings were on the Diamond Dave album, different things like that. Was he easy to work with or is that a harder thing than Ringo? Oh, no, uh, he was easy. I mean, uh, he really is, the way he appears, that's him. He's like some comedians that are always on all the time. That's, that's the way Dave is. His, his stage persona, I'm not that way. Like when I, when I, uh, when I get on, say, hello, everybody, are you ready to rock and roll? And that's <laughs> not really me. And yeah. people people meet me and then they say, oh, you're so mild-mannered and, and soft-spoken and, and articulate. And right. they, I didn't expect you, uh, you know, to be that person. But uh, David, David, that's the way, uh, Diamond Dave, that's him. You know, that, that's, that's who he is. And he called me up, uh, he wanted to do Easy Street and he wanted it to be the real deal, the authentic thing and asked if I would be on that. And he said, and I got this weird song that you've never heard, I'm sure, uh, Gigolo. And uh, I said, oh, you mean Sam Butera, you know, that played on, uh, right. uh, played on that, one of my favorite sax players, but Louis Prima, I mean, uh, to me, he liked, uh, I think of him as starting rock and roll, all, like more than uh, 
Rock Around the Clock and, and uh, Bill Haley and the Comets. I mean, he rocked. The Louis Prima stuff was just slamming. And I, I knew the song. I remember, and I said, are you kidding? I, I can, I love to play on that song. So we had a, we had a blast and, uh, uh, you know, doing that. And yeah, it was interesting. The Vegas run was uh, something I never expected Dave to go there to go in that direction but it was a very cool show i enjoyed the heck out of it uh i think that you were the only spotlit or spotlighted person within the vegas show where he you did free ride i guess that gave him the chance to do a costume change whereas dave is kind of known to like this is my show and what i do but he's always talked wonderfully about you in, in in interviews about you being an influence on him did you inspire him to do tobacco road because you did it 20 years or so before he did yeah i would assume so i i i know he must have been familiar with it uh but uh i never really asked him that question directly but i always made that assumption is is and i thought oh great Dave's doing tobacco road <laughs> you know i the version uh, the Nashville teens had the pop version of the song, which I never really, uh, that wasn't the one for me. Lou Rawls had a version of Tobacco Road, and that was the one with a big, uh, a big, big horn section, uh, like a, a big swing band thing, and it had really cool harmonica in it. It was like a, a fusion of, of a big band and, and blues, uh, and I loved that. Uh, that was pretty much the arrangement, uh, very similar to the arrangement that I came up with with White Trash, uh, you know, when we did it uh, there. And of course, I did it on the entrance album with Johnny's Blues Trio for the first time. But uh, it was the one I liked about Tobacco Road was it uh, like so many blues songs are 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 kind of down and uh, that is like overcoming adversity. It's like, you know, coming from humble beginnings and, uh, and turning things around. And I love that positive message of, you know, bring it back to Tobacco Road. Uh, so I was always one of the ones that I, I used to enjoy singing. Uh, and I wasn't, I never really considered myself a singer in, in the early days. I was more a serious musician. Thankfully I've gotten over that. <laughs> but uh, I, I I was more an instrumentalist, you know, than a, than a singer, uh, and and developed uh, interest in singing, you know, later. Uh, and now I, I I've come to really love it. But uh, Tobacco Road was one of the first songs, you know, that I did. Stormy Monday, that was the other song that I used to sing with Johnny. Uh, when we do these long sets, like five hours. Uh, five hours. You know, Five, yeah, uh, yeah. Completely you mean five one-hour sets or five hours straight? Five. Uh, well, we saw uh, one break in the middle, one break in the middle. Like you'd play from, uh, say, from nine to uh, either eight to one or or nine to two. And a lot of the clubs were in Louisiana. Uh, where you know Beaumont is just uh, several miles from the Louisiana border, and the liquor laws are eighteen there in Louisiana, as opposed to 21 in Texas. So the uh, the Bible Belt is a couple of notches looser over there in Louisiana. <laughs> just really, just fun-loving, warm-hearted people. And uh, I didn't know that Kenny Wayne Shepherd is from Louisiana and, uh, and Bobby Rush. Uh, 
And I de didn't find that out. And I, you know, when, when I got in the studio with Kenny Wayne and uh, we started talking about growing up and things, and we had played a lot in a lot of the same clubs uh, in Louisiana. And I thought, no wonder I love this guy's playing so much. <laughs> he comes, you know, he's right down the road practically and grew up listening to all the same music, you know, that, that, uh, that I did. But it's funny, like, the, the, this album was great in that respect like a lot of the people on it are long time friends and a lot of them mm -hmm. are people that uh that i uh never got a chance to work with before and this is a great opportunity for me to mention ross hogarth who oh yeah uh, became right. the co-creator and uh ross was just uh invaluable uh, it would not be the album it is without Ross. He made so many great suggestions for people that uh, that I was uh, uh, either completely unaware of, like I didn't know David Grissom, who's a great guitarist, uh, a fellow Texan, and uh, and just played some of the greatest stuff. Uh, that, and Ross suggested to him. He suggested. Uh, uh, Oh, uh, Doyle Bramhall to oh, do yeah. the acoustic, the acoustic yeah. thing, and uh, John McPhee uh, to do the slide on Highway 61 with the Doobie Brothers. Of course, I knew, I knew all of, I knew who they were, but I just wouldn't have thought. Like I always thought of John McPhee. I knew he's a great guitarist, but I didn't know he like he, that he. Uh, and then with that great of a slide player and then I remember hearing all those early doobie songs and all the great slide work and yeah you're right man that would be that would be perfect Ross also suggested doing um, uh, something by Muddy Waters and, mm -hmm. and I said man I can't believe that I hadn't thought of and realized that there has to be a, a muddy song on here because johnny just loved and idolized muddy waters and, and i think the high point of his career was getting to uh getting to meet and play with and make those records with muddy it just meant the world to him and so of course that's that one ended up with bobby rush was mm -hmm. suggested. Uh, and the other person that I'll thank here is Bruce Quarto, who is the president of Quarto Valley Records, which is the label that the, the album label, yeah. is on. And Bruce uh, suggested Bobby Rush. And he, you know, he's one of those Chicago, like with all of the guys, like, uh, uh, you know, Buddy Guy and uh, Willie Dixon and Muddy and uh, Little Walter, Howlin' Wolf, all of those Chicago people so that was like not only a tribute to johnny but uh to the chicago blues and and to muddy as well so sort of a tribute within a tribute so. you you just mentioned a bunch of artists or people that i'm a fan of and had the pleasure interviewing you know ross hogarth to make a very small world engineered one of my favorite van halen albums a different kind of truth and mm -hmm. i interviewed him when he was inducted into i think the rock gods hall of fame there in California. So Ross is a talented guy, one of those journeymen people behind the scenes. It's not a household name, but is friends with all the household names, kind of like you, where that, yes, you're playing stadiums, but I think the average person knows 10 of your songs, but doesn't quite like know them offhand. You know what I'm saying? Like they would see you live and go, wait, he did that one too? And that one too? And that one too, that's what seeing Edgar Winter live is like to me. 
Well, thank you. That's a, that's a very generous compliment. Uh, you know, what I've tried to do throughout my career, I like uh, you mentioned, you know, the fact that that I cover a lot of territory musically and a lot of my albums are kind of scattered and unfocused. I think that I think one thing that uh, uh, people will love about the album Brother Johnny is that it has a very definite focus. And, you know, it's it's not the album that that Johnny would have made, but Johnny always encouraged me to follow my heart in music. I, you know, I, I love jazz and classical as well as blues and rock. And uh, uh, I think it's the album that I think if I'd made an album, uh, if I had gone the straight blues route, I don't think Johnny would have liked that. I think he would have said, you know, how come all of a sudden you're uh, trying to sound exactly like me and doing all everything the, the way uh, that I would have done it? So th this is the album I think Johnny would have wanted me to make for him. I think it's also the album that your fans would have wanted to make. So I think you checked a lot of boxes where you were able to make something that was a personal album that's also accessible and also your fans would like. Yeah, well, I, I, I think Johnny has a depth and scope that a lot of people are unaware of. Uh, and you mentioned Taylor Hawkins and yeah. Taylor, uh, Taylor was another suggestion from Ross and mm -hmm. that song uh uh guess I'll go away that was really uh uh one of Johnny's most interesting songs to me I think the most uh by far on the album it stands out to me as the most hard rocking energetic uh song on the it's almost borders on on heavy metal and mm -hmm. because of that uh, that modern approach. And uh, in terms of the subject matter, uh, it's, you know, about, uh, about the danger of, of drugs. Uh, and I'd said it was written around the time Johnny went into rehab, the love of rock and roll, the lure of sex, the danger of drugs, and the love of rock and roll. And for uh, Taylor really identified with that song. And when he came in, like never having met him, I was just uh, his sincerity and his heart in, uh, I tried to open a business discussion with him and he would not hear of it. He said, I don't want anything for doing this. I love this song, I love Johnny. I just wanna get out there and rock. And man, rock he did. Uh, and it, it just, uh, Another example of, of somebody uh, that I never uh, would have imagined being on the record and, uh, and, and another example of uh, how much Ross contributed in the making of it. It definitely took on a life of its own and it wasn't something I just said, well, I'm gonna hit the road and, and go where it leads me. And um, just so, uh, you know, there were some some highly emotional moments. I, I didn't know, but it was very cathartic. Uh, 
very cleansing and healing. And after having made it, I feel uh, closer to Johnny in a way that I never would have expected. And, you know, although Johnny has departed this world, I mm -hmm. talk to him, I talk to him every day. Mm -hmm. I think of him and his presence and his music uh, will live on with me forever. And I'm just so happy that I could make this album. There's so much love in it. And, mm -hmm. and I think that that's what people hopefully will hear. And it'll be a journey that, that they'll want to, uh, that they'll want to go on and come back to again and again. The fact that it's a Billboard number one blues album also makes it live on where it has <laughs> to be documented in history. The fact that it was a number one album. Yeah, it's I'm I'm over the moon about that. I I, you know, I wasn't thinking about uh, I've never thought about fame or success, and that's one of the ways in which Johnny and I are totally different. He had the ambition and the drive. He had that dream ever since I can remember. Uh, he was going to be a star. He was Johnny Cool Daddy Winter with the pompadour and the shades right. and the guitar and the girls. And I was like the quiet kid that played all the instrument. So, Every instrument. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We, we started out playing ukulele singing Everly Brothers song. Wake up little Susie, I want to go home. You know, sounds like that. And then he graduated to guitar and it became apparent he was going to be the guitar player. And I said, well, I'll play everything else. So <laughs> I yeah, picked uh, up bass for a while and then I played drums and then I played piano and, and then, then finally saxophone. But it was such it was so much fun growing up playing with Johnny, uh, you know, and, and this album just brought back those all of those memories. So many of the songs that uh, that we used to play together when we were young. Uh, so, you know, it, it's just, uh, it was really a joyous, uplifting experience. I love those, with reference to you playing all the instruments, I love those videos and performances where during Frankenstein, you go to every single instrumental station and play that part of that, which is something that Kid Rock later, I would say stole from you when he tried to demonstrate that he could play three chords on every single thing. So uh -huh. kudos to you on actually being able to walk the walk and playing all those instruments. You did it before Prince did. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just what I, what I did. Uh, and it's a great, uh, it's a great leveler. Like if, if you ever find yourself, uh, you know, getting bored, pick up a new <laughs> instrument, you know, then you're back to square one. And, and it, it, every time I do that, it reminds me of when I started out as a kid. Uh, so uh, I also was interested. I loved Ray Charles. Like the, the other thing that was different, uh, I had mentioned Johnny's drive and determination. Uh, and that brings up the song Lone Star Blues, which mm -hmm. is one of the one of the two songs that I wrote that are original songs. But I tried to write that in Johnny's voice. He went through a period after working his life, his whole life to achieve that goal. When he got it, I remember him saying, uh, I never thought it would be this way. I, I feel so somehow disconnected it's though i'm i've become invisible like this uh this image has uh 
taken over and it's what people see and and i don't feel like i don't know who to talk to i feel like nobody really knows who i am and uh and it was a difficult period of readjustment and he worked through that and uh and and came out stronger than ever after he went into rehab and and came out he rededicated himself to the blues he went through that rock period with Johnny Winter in, which I think was one of the great rock and roll bands of all time. That mm -hmm. I think to me that was just a killer band. But I tried to write that song uh, as Johnny would have written it at that time. And I I know that he uh, you know he loved his fans and 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 he came to appreciate everything that he was able to accomplish. But going through that rough period there and and the thing about that song, the the beauty of it is is, uh, and once again, here's Ross Hogarth. I knew that he had done the Tashmo album with uh, mm -hmm. with Kebmo and Taj Mahal, mm -hmm. and I said, do you think we could get uh, could we get Kebmo to do this? So he set up a, a phone conversation, and and uh, I talked to Kevin, and he was just so down home and and beautiful, and he said, well. I explained all the, the concept of the album and the song. And he said, well, let me hear it. And he broke that song down and, and started from scratch. He put all the instruments on. He did exactly what I hoped he would do. I wanted a real authentic blues man to do that song. And, uh, and the thing of it was, was because it was written in Johnny's voice like that, mm -hmm. when he made it, he when he made it a duet, and when he came in, like sounds like the Lone Star Blues. It was like the old. It just had this note of of uh, sincerity and compassion, and this whole song seemed to come to life. It was like the old blues man saying to the young, confused guy, "Yeah, you know, things can get tough, but it's going to be all right." You know, right. and that 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 just it was it touched my heart and made that song so much better uh, than than what it would have been uh, otherwise. And thank you, Kev Mo, for making making that song what it is. I love you. If you have time for one more question or topic, uh, great. If not, man, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, I have uh, I have until uh, I have until three actually. Well. I'll let you go before then. But my last thing is Good. a mystery that I've been trying to figure out related to your work with David Lee Roth. If you don't know the answer, that's totally fine. But I figure you remember everything. Uh, that's the impression that I get. And that's some cover recordings that Dave did in the late 90s, early 2000s were credited to the DLR Vegas band. And that includes a cover of Living in America, which was done with your old friend Dan Hartman uh, on mm -hmm. the songwriting and Baker Street. Were you part of those recordings? Were you part of the DLR Vegas band? Because there's no documentation anywhere. No, no, I wasn't even aware of that. I, uh, well, actually, now that you mention it, I, I am vaguely aware of his having done Living in America, but I think uh, I think Dave probably uh, he obviously had uh, he was familiar with things that I had done like Easy Street and and that probably uh, uh, by connection uh, caused him to listen to 
the things that uh, that Dan went on to do, and I'm sure he was familiar with Rick's music. Uh, he kind of uh, got to follow our camp. You know, I'm sure he knew Johnny's music as well. But no, I wasn't connected with that in any way. So you just did the Vegas residency, but you're yeah. not part of the DLR Vegas band. No, I was not. So I'm even more confused now because there's yeah. now a second <laughs> DLR Vegas band. Well, I wow. didn't. Was that after? Did that occur after? Uh, after I played with him or before? Uh, I think it was after. I think it was late '90s, early 2000s, because your Vegas show was 1995. Okay. That sounds about right to me. Yes. Got it. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's what led him. That's probably what led him to do it is uh, he thought, well, I'll follow this road here. Uh, and that would be an obvious thing to do would be, uh, you know, to uh, after the group broke up, I, I, I knew that Dan would go on to great success. I, I had every expectation of that happening and was certainly not disappointed. Dan just, I mean, people like Tina Turner and and, uh, uh, and James Brown, I mean, yeah. amazing. He, his, uh, Dan was so cool. He was a lot like myself, a multi, a multi-instrumentalist and, uh, and could virtually play uh, any instrument, any style. Uh, and, you know, that like the, the style, the, the various, I never could understand why music should be separated into genres. I just uh, always sort of rebelled against that. To me, it seemed almost like a kind of musical segregation. It was like, okay, all you cowboys, you'll play country and Western and all these black people are gonna play the blues. And I always viewed it as a record company device uh, to target a specific audience, they they wanted you. They wanted an, an artist to be uh, one thing. They right. they had a tendency not to uh, embrace multifaceted artists. They wanted you to be very definitely one thing or the other, so that uh, they could target a uh, uh, you know do their marketing and target a listening audience. And I always rebelled against that. Uh, because to me, uh, it's all of, all about trying to uh, forge new frontiers and make people aware of all the music that's out there to uh, broaden musical horizons. You know, that's that's always been the, the thing that I felt. And I, I love people like that would blend uh, various people like, say, oh, Sting, who has a jazz sensibility and a mm -hmm. great writer, uh, Bruce Hornsby, who oh, yeah. is sort of country, but, you know, can, can a fluid jazz with the great solo. Flute, it, you know. oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 But, jazz, but also can do the country thing, but can play with the Grateful Dead. He can improvise, but he's also classically trained. I see what you're saying. Um, hence, you know, Free Ride, Frankenstein, Tobacco Road, and a Tupac sample, uh, all from one gentleman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's, uh, I, you know, I, I never really, when I say that I, uh, that I set out to do that, it really is just naturally who I am. Yeah. And, uh, and Unlike Johnny, I never had any desire to be famous. 
uh, I just had a love of music, a love of chords and harmony and rhythm. And it was Woodstock that changed, that utterly changed my life. Uh, mm -hmm. Because up to that point, I had looked at music as my own sort of personal private escape world. And Johnny was the extrovert and I was the introvert. He reached out to the world with his music. And, and for me, it was a, uh, an inner world of self-discovery and something that, that I sort of withdrew into. But when I played Woodstock, I'll never forget uh, the vibe, this feeling of unity of mm -hmm. uh, somehow being a part of something uh, that, that was bigger, something that could really make a difference. And I, I was asleep. I was dead asleep in a, uh, on the floor in a press trailer and somebody shook me awake. And, okay, oh, you're going to go it on. And I staggered out on stage and I, I just found myself looking out over this endless sea of humanity. And it was just uh, a, an epiphany, a transfiguring moment. I said, how did I get here? How this is uh, I just couldn't believe that I was there and seeing all of those people united in that unique way, the whole thing being set against the social backdrop of civil rights and the peace movement. Uh, and it, it just made me realize that music could have a higher purpose. It could be so much more than just artistic beauty. It could mm -hmm. actually reach out and bring people together in a way that I had never considered. And that after Woodstock, that's when I actually started to consider what it would be like to be an artist rather than just a musician. And uh, that's when I started to write songs and uh, Johnny and I did the entrance album together. And as they say, the rest is history. And the rest is history. Well, congratulations again on the Brother Johnny album. I think that you checked a lot of boxes with this one and really hope to see you live in New York in the near future. Just thank you for the many years of great art, Edgar. Well, thank you, Darren. 